Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2, and we continue in our study of Genesis. We've looked so far at the beginning of the world, at the beginning of time as you and I would know it and experience it. We've looked at the beginning of mankind, of all the living creatures. We've completed the six active days of creation, and we've looked at the seventh day, the day of rest. And so here in our study today, we look at chapter 2, verse 4. And this begins an entirely new emphasis in Genesis, where chapter 1 focused on God as the sole actor in creation. Chapter 2 begins the focus on humanity as reactor to this creation. The creation account ends with God's declaration that it was very Good, meaning it was perfect. It lacked for nothing. It was deficient of nothing. God rested from his creative work. He established a holy day of rest for devotion to him as creator. And from this point forward, we will see mankind's reaction to God, to who he is, to what he has done, and to what he will decree in just a few short verses. So as chapter 2 unfolds for us, we are confronted with what some claim to be a second creation account. But it is not a second creation account. It is detail to creation explained to us from chapter 1 that cannot be found in chapter 1. We know it's not a second creation account because nowhere in this chapter and following is there mention of God creating light or the atmosphere of separating the waters, of bringing the landmass out of the waters, of not creating the luminaries, the sea creatures, the land creatures, or any other thing. We only see a detail of what was not included in chapter 1. So what we will explore today is a detailed focus on day 6 which is the day of creation of man. And there are several fascinating elements that can be found here. Now, you might read Genesis 2, 4 through 7 and go, okay, that's pretty interesting, and just move on. (laughs) But like I said in the very, very beginning of our study of Genesis, there's an incredible challenge about how much information to include, how to separate it, how how to categorize it, and it really is an overwhelming task. But let's read together these four verses and see what God's Word says to us today. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, I've mentioned this before, but Hebrew writing has a very unique unique literary style that we are not familiar with, and this causes us to miss some of what is being emphasized. Thankfully, there are scholars and experts to dig out these things for us. Now, if we were familiar with the Hebrew language, and if we were more familiar with the literary style found in Hebrew writing, we would likely begin to see hints at something that is not so obvious to us, but because we are not that familiar with the Hebrew language or the literary style, we 
miss this stuff altogether. So I'm very, very grateful to the man that God has gifted to learn these things, to communicate these things, and to find ways to apply these things to our lives that help us recognize the majesty and the wisdom and the power of the Lord God. So there's three importances that we're going to look at as an introduction into what we're going to look at today. This is really a very lengthy introduction, cut very, very short because of time and because of the propensity to kind of drift away and go, what's he talking about? I don't know. What am I going to do today? So we're going to keep this a little bit, a little bit more brief to help us kind of capture the most important parts of this, at least in the way that I see it. So each I didn't say this. So there are ten books in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is divided out into what scholars identify as ten books. When we look at the Psalms, there's 153 Psalms. We see 153 Psalms, but there's actually five books or five natural divisions in the Psalter. So in Genesis, there are actually ten books that are divided out, and each of these books begins with the Hebrew word toledoth. Or the phrase, this is the account. So verse 4 says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. So number one of these importances is Toledoth, which means generations. We could literally say, this is the generations of the heavens and of the earth. So each book in Genesis describes the generations that begin with the individual that is mentioned. So here, this first book begins in Genesis 2-4. It's going to run all the way into 4 to 4-26. And it is an account or a, the generations of the heavens and the earth in a very general way. It is literal history, but it is also typological. We'll get more of that as we go through the book of Genesis. The, the second book is the account of Adam's line, which is beginning in chapter 5 all the way to 6-8. The third book, the account of Noah's line, from 6-9 through the end of 9-29. The account of the line of Noah's sons, 10-1 to 11-9. The account of Shem's line, 11-10 to 26. The account of Terah's line, 11-27 to 25-11. The account of Ishmael's line, 25-12 to 18. The account of Isaac's line, 2519 to 3529 the account of Esau's line 361 to 371 and then the account of Jacob's line 372 all the way to the end 5026 now for further study you can look at these marks you can do some kind of a concordant search for the word the account of what you're going to see is the beginning of these 10 distinct books within the book of Genesis as a whole Now, I think that's important because it's a way for us to section out and to understand what is being said by God through Moses, the one he inspired to pen these words. So here in this first book of Genesis, we see the generations of the heavens and the earth or what takes place as a result of creation. 
This first book takes us through the end of chapter 4, after the fall of man, after the curse is pronounced, the expulsion from Eden, after Cain and Abel are born, and then after Abel is murdered, and then there's some finishing touches that would take us all the way to the end of chapter 4. Now this is important. Because in this book, what Moses is doing is he is pointing us towards what's going to happen as a result of the fall. So this first book is preparatory to the other nine books that are going to follow, and it makes it possible for us to understand what Moses is saying here and how these truths and realities then get lived out through all the different accounts or generations of the individual that is mentioned. Couldn't skip over that. May not really make a lot of sense to you. May not really ring your bell. That's okay. It's very, very important because, again, it sets the stage for what is going to come. Now, the second importance that we see here is the word order found here in verse 4 of earth and heaven. Reading chapter, reading verse 4 again. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, the beginning part of verse 4, 4a, is the same order as we would find in 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. Here, for literary emphasis, the word order is reversed, earth and heaven. Now, a part of Hebrew literary style is called parallelism. You might even have heard the term chiastic parallelism, which gives us this order of A, B, B, A. And so literally in the Hebrew, here is what we would see. The heavens, letter A, the heavens and the earth, letter B, when they were created, letter B again, when the Lord God made, and then letter A again, the earth and the heavens. Now the point of this literary style, of this parallelism, is to focus What is going to take place on earth as a result of day six, the creation of man. The order of heaven and earth is not just coincidental. It's Moses' intentional literary style to bring emphasis to what it is he's going to say. Now the account of the heavens and the earth records the drastic change from the pristine condition of what God created. His declaration was that it is very good to the harsh realities that will be experienced when man is expelled from the garden. Through the fall, sin and death are going to enter into the human race and the earth as well as humanity becomes cursed. Now we'll read this in Genesis three seventeen and 18. Then he, excuse me, then Adam, then to Adam he, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and I have eaten from the tree, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So both humanity 
and the physical earth are in need of redemption after the fall. This is a part of what Moses is preparing us to experience through the chiastic parallelism that we see expressed here in verse 4. In the historical event of the fall, Adam and Eve function as archetypes for humanity's disobedience. What we see take place in the fall has been replicated by every one of us, by every person who has ever lived, and this again is what Moses is setting up for us in book one of the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve are priestly guardians of Eden and are tested for their faithfulness to God. We'll look at this more when we talk about the Garden of Eden next time. But if you think about how Israel worshipped, there was a tabernacle. And within the tabernacle, there was the, the Holy of Holies. And in a sense, the Holy of Holies is kind of like Eden. And where the high priest guards the Holy of Holies, Adam and Eve guard the Garden of Eden. They are its protectors. Their obedience to God's command is tested, and as a result of that, they are kicked out of this Eden, this Holy of Holies, and they are now left to fend for themselves apart from the protection of God in the Holy of Holies or in the Garden of Eden. So obedience entitles them to life with God and failure points to their need for justification and sanctification through the covenant of redemption that will be established with and through Jesus Christ. Now, this is not just creative explanation. This is really what Moses is pointing the Hebrew reader to who would understand this as I go through this preparatory part of the first book. So this reality is further established with the third subtle importance, and that is what we're going to see here, and that is a new name for God. Throughout the creation account in chapter 1, Moses used the term Elohim as a title for God, and he uses this title 35 times. Now, God is going to, excuse me, now Moses calls him Lord God, which is Yahweh Elohim. Let's read verse 4 together again. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now because verse 4 is in this chiastic parallelism, it is seen as a singular unit. You can't divide it out and make it into different sections. It is one verse. It is one piece of communication. And a part of the subtlety that is woven into this first book of, the, of Genesis is this name change, which is very, very subtle to the English reader. The significance of the name change is that Yahweh is the personal covenant name of God who relates to and also redeems His people. Think about that. 
where Elohim created everything that man would ever experience in the physical world, now Moses is introducing us into the covenant name for God, even though the need for a covenant between God and man, even though the separation of God and man has not yet been introduced to us, Moses is preparing his reader for that reality. Now, interestingly and significantly, the only place in this first book that the name Lord God is not used is in the testing of Eve by the serpent in Genesis 3, 2 through 5, where he engages her in doubting God, where he deceives her into not trusting God. Here's what we actually read. In Genesis 3, 1 through 5, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, has Elohim said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the only point where the covenant name from when the serpent engages Eve to deceive her and to disobeying what God has said. So the title Yahweh Elohim combines the creator and the covenant redeemer aspects of God into one magnificent name. And this name change is necessary because here Moses is introducing us to what man is going to need after the fall, and that is a covenant redeemer who happens to be the creator of the universe. Whenever we see in the Bible the title the Lord God in Scripture, it signifies God our creator and our covenant redeemer, and the subtlety of the Hebrew language is amazing in what it can reveal. The Lord God is just not a way of emphasizing the name God. It calls the reader to the covenant redeemer who created everything that is. So these are the three importances that are introduced to us here in verse 4 that are very, very necessary for understanding what will take place in this first book of Genesis. Now, number two in our outline would be the details that are found in creation. Verse 5 says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Now this verse has caused a lot of confusion. And this confusion is rooted in our lack of understanding the Hebrew language and the literary style employed by Moses here in these verses. So the first thing that we see here is no shrubs. Now remember, this is a detail of day six. Moses has not taken us back to day three when vegetation was created. This is a focus on to day six, right before man was created. So this is not 
an account of creation, a second account, but detail providing what is not given to us here in chapter 1. The verse is not saying that there was no vegetation of any kind, but there were not yet any shrubs of the field or any plants of the field. Well, you're saying you're just, this is just a semantic argument, right? You're trying to, you're trying to divide something out, trying to make a point for kind of an emphasis in preaching, so you can have three points here. That's not what it is at all. <laughs> the Hebrew word for vegetation, deshe, is different from the word for shrub, syak. Two totally different words. The focus of the description is on those parts of the land that were to be directly affected by the fall. The narrative points to the fact that before man was created in verse 7, the effects of man's rebellion and the fall had not yet been on the land. Not yet felt on the land. No shrubs of the field, no plants of the field, which is very, very different from the vegetation and the trees that God created on day 3 as generally described for us in chapter 1. So each each of the parts of the description of the land in 5 and 6 is specifically identified as a result of the fall of man. It is anticipation of the thorns and thistles and the plants of the field that were inedible that were going to come as a result of the curse that God gives upon the land because of Adam and Eve's sin. So the vegetation God created on day three was good. It was perfect. It lacked nothing. It provided all the food that man and animal would ever need to be able to nourish themselves physically. But the fall of man would bring a curse to the good thing that God had created and thorns and thistles and inedible plants of the field would be the result of that. The shrubs or thorns and thistles are not defined for us any more than the vegetation was not defined for us. In chapter 1, the Hebrew words for them are different, and it is Moses' literary style in pointing us towards what's going to happen as a result of the fall. So before man was created, there were no thorns, there were no thistles, there were no plants of the field. These things were not a part of what God created. Those things that would come are the result of man's sin. Now the way you and I would understand this is very, very different. If you go out and do any yard work or you do any gardening, you know that it takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy, let's use a garden, to make that perfectly ready to produce a harvest, right? And so you cultivate it and you kill off or pull out any weed, anything that's growing there that you don't want to grow. And you get it all ready and you plant your seed. And lo and behold, up shoots what you sprouted, but sprouted, but up sprouts what you have planted. But there's also things growing that you did not plant. These are the things that are in the soil apart from what you intended, and that is a picture image of what Moses is alluding to. 
thinking about your garden in its perfect state, ready to produce a harvest. That's a picture of what God did. But it didn't need any cultivation. It didn't need any seed to be planted. It didn't need any watering. God made it perfect. But through the fall, all kinds of things happen and are necessary in order for those seeds you planted to produce something meaningful that you could actually eat. The stuff that grows out of your garden that you did not plant, you probably don't want to eat that stuff. It's the inedibles that are the result of the fall. So before man was created, no shrubs, no thorns, no thistles, no plants of the field. Secondly, what we see here is no rain. Verse 6. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So prior to the fall of man, there was no rain. In fact, rain would not come until the days of Noah, which is approximately 1,650 years later. Wow, you know, really? Well, if you track the genealogies that are laid out for us, the guesstimate is approximately 1,650 years from the time Adam was created to the time of the flood of Noah. And in that period in between, no rain. There was no rain prior to the creation of man. The first rain came as a sign of judgment against the sin of mankind. And here the implication is that the rain and the thorns and thistles and the shrubs of the field that would come are related together. The rain that is going to come is somehow connected and related to the thorns and the thistles and the plants of the field and they're related by virtue of the fall and the curse that God is going to put upon the world he created. Now, a lack of rain does not mean a lack of water. Now, what is not as helpful for us is the word that translators have chosen to use here, the word mist, and that is the Hebrew word eth, and this word means a stream. And so the idea is that there was a stream or streams that existed, and so the surface of the ground was watered by streams or subterranean waters that would rise up and provide water for all the vegetation that God created. Before man was created, there was no rain because there was no need for rain. God's agricultural system included a natural watering of the earth by subterranean waters that were perfectly orchestrated to give the earth all the moisture it would ne- it would ever need. So in the next section of chapter 2, we're going to see the four rivers that are introduced, and it's likely that these rivers were part of the irrigation process that God had established in order to provide suitable waters for the purpose of irrigation. But this subterranean irrigation would all change after the fall. While there are still subterranean waters, the earth is largely dependent upon rain for sufficient crop irrigation. Again, Moses is is contrasting the pre-fall state of creation with what will take place in the generations of the earth after the fall. So in the Bible, rain is very symbolic. 
It can be considered judgment. Too much rain bringing a flood is considered judgment. Too little rain brings a drought which is considered judgment. And these realities are related to the fall. So before man was created and what God had created, no shrubs, no thorns, no thistles, no plants of the field, no rain, all of those realities are post-fall realities. And this is, again, the literary style that Moses is using to prepare his reader for what's going to come in book one of Genesis. Now, the third thing that we see here in the detail of creation is no man to cultivate Now we go back up into verse 5, the last part, verse 5c, and it says there was no man to cultivate the ground. So again, the narrative here in book 1 is pointing us to the post-fall earth where man would be forced to cultivate the ground in order to feed himself. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were able to eat freely from the vast array of foods that grew and the vegetation and the plants that produce seed that God had created on day three. These things grew freely. They grew without the need for any rain. It was just a part of God's system. And so for Adam and Eve to feed themselves, it was effortless, effortless, Effortless. All they had to do was just leave wherever it was they were sleeping and go out into any direction they wanted and say, well, that looks good to eat and pick it and eat it. Or to bend down and scoop it up and say, that looks good to eat, I'll just eat it. That was the pre-fall reality. The post-fall reality is that now it would be required to cultivate the ground. Why? Because now the earth was filled with thorns and thistles, shrubs of the field and plants of the field that were inedible. Growing food would be challenging because of the, of the inedible things out there, because of the work that would be, that would be required to make the earth grow the food that mankind would need to eat, because of the dependency on a right amount of water to fall from the sky. Too little rain or too much rain would add greater difficulty. So as Moses begins to relay the the generations of the earth, it is clear that it is going to be very, very different from what God intended. No shrubs, no rain, no man to cultivate the fields. Pre-fall, there was no need for any of that because God's creation was perfect. It was very good and all of that was going to change in book one of Genesis through the fall. So this preparation here of what is not in creation now is culminated for us in this man's creation. Verse 7a, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Notice what Moses includes here is that the covenant redeemer creator now creates man. We don't get that detail in chapter 1. But here we understand with the usage of of Yahweh Elohim that before man is created, there is a redeeming God who already knows and has already made provision for what man is going to need. So the first thing that we see here in man's creation is Adam, who is God-formed. 
Again, Yahweh God, the covenant creator, creates man. To form means to fashion. It's the idea that God formed Adam with divine intention as a potter would intentionally mold and shape the clay into something that he intends or as a painter with his paints would in, would create something that he intends. So the idea is man is not an afterthought, but rather the intentional product of the infinite mind of God that the designed every atom in the universe to operate in perfect harmony with itself. Infinite intention was focused on the creation of man. This divine intention was formed out of the dust from the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to go outside into any place in the world and just scooped up some dirt from the ground, I couldn't make anything more than a ball of mud, assuming there was enough moisture to hold it together. All I could do is gather up some dust and mush it together and let it fall through my fingers, but not the infinite, powerful, all-wise, all-glorious God. His intentional design is that from the dust of the earth, He creates the crown jewel of creation. While we are the crown jewel, we are but dust. John Calvin says this, The body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense to the end that no one should ever exalt beyond measure in his flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not hear, learn humility. The crown jewel of creation created from the dust of the earth. (laughs) It was nothing apart from the work of God. It can be nothing apart from the work of God. From dust we came, and to dust we shall return. Genesis 3.19 By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. One of the great tensions in the And the reality that we are the crown jewel of God's creation, created in His image, but are nothing but dust. That only works in the sovereign mind of God. Number two, as we look at the detail of creation, Adam is God-breathed. It says here in verse 7, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The idea here is that there is incredible intimacy from the covenant redeemer creator. He takes the dust of the earth and he fashions it into a man who is complete in every way with the exception of life. And God himself pulls the face of Adam close and breathes life into his nostrils. Did God need to do that? Is that the picture image that we need to understand? The intimate connection, the personal relation between Creator, Redeemer, and man. Don't need that to be there, but it's there so we can say, Wow! A personal, intimate, 
covenant creator-redeemer breathed life into the first man. And apart from this act of God, no man, no woman, no child would ever be apart from the graciousness of God. This verb, this word God breathed is warmly personal with this face-to-face intimacy of God breathing life into this lifeless human created from the dust of the earth. I believe that this adds to our understanding of our being created in the likeness of God and the fact that we have received our very breath from God and that this creation is unique in everything that God has made. The third detail of, of creation that we see here is Adam, a living being. And that's what ends our verse 7 today. And man became a living being. Out of the inanimate soil of the ground... Now, there are microorganisms in the ground. You could look at the earth under a microscope, and there are all kinds of things there, but nothing that would ever constitute the likely conclusion that man would come from that. And out of that, God creates a living being. Mankind has a tremendous capacity for glory. To know God, to walk with God, to serve God, to reflect His image in the world that He has created. But man also has tremendous capacity for disaster. To run from God, to serve himself, and to make a mockery of the image of God within him. Is it difficult to look into our world today and to see the capacity for disaster within mankind. Oh my goodness. Well, here is the introduction to the story of the generations of the earth. And it's not a pretty one. In spite of what we have made out of it, God's creation still reflects His immense power, His wisdom, and His glory. He is the covenant creator who has made a way for man back to the original glory that he intended, but only through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are but dust, and we will return to dust, and life on this earth is intended for us to know God, to walk with God, to serve God, and to reflect His glory. My younger brother, who recently went through cancer treatment and surgery, um, gave his life to Christ. And I went down to visit with him not quite a year ago. And I gave to him a children's Bible to help him get a foundation for all the different stories of the Bible that help us understand the revelation of God. And I had gone out to visit with some friends, and I came back, and I noticed that he had read a good chunk of the story Bible. So I asked him, I said, what would you think? He goes, well, there's a lot of evil in there. And I said, yeah, it didn't take long, did it? Think about this. God creates man. Shortly we're going to see that God creates Eve out of man. They are now set up to live in a garden. We don't know how long they're there. They get expelled from the garden through their sin. And then they give birth to their first children. And one murders the other. 
Just like that. Didn't take long, did it? We've made a disaster out of what God has created, but He has made a way of restoration through faith in who Jesus is and in what Jesus has done for us. We will never ever know it in full here. We can know it and experience it partially. And what we experience partially, we long for to be revealed in fullness when we see Him face to face. That's a good thing. Would you join me in prayer?